It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, Slate podcast listeners. Help us make a better Slate by answering our survey. It will only take a few minutes, I promise. And you can find it at slate.com slash survey. Some people are looking to the First Amendment to be the solution to our problems in the digital public sphere. And I think there's a real question, can the First Amendment be a solution here? But there's also a question, is the First Amendment the problem? Hi, and welcome back to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the courts and the law and the Supreme Court and the rule of law. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. I cover some of those things for Slate. This past week has seen confirmation hearings for Merrick Garland to serve as the new attorney general, bitter division around a COVID relief package, and bitter division around a voting rights bill. And we're also seeing some signaling from the Supreme Court about the future of voting rights in the courts. But we wanted to turn our gaze up and out this episode to talk about the First Amendment. Everybody everywhere, I promise, is mad right now about somebody taking away their right to speak. But if the First Amendment is unerringly the answer, it's at least possible we might be asking the wrong question. So we wanted to consider speech and the regulation of speech, all the ways in which, as I am at least coming to understand it, this the so-called marketplace of ideas is at the mercy of a real-life market. And all of this touches on our current global politics, who regulates speech on Facebook and on Twitter, and who gets to impose consequences when speech is inciting of violence. Later on in the show, Slate Plus listeners are going to get to hear from the wonderful Mark Joseph Stern for an exclusive segment looking at the new shape of the Supreme Court, some hints on voting rights, and also the uncanny commonalities in who gets hit with what amounts of vitriol in the ongoing confirmation process for Justice Department positions. Slate Plus members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Dear Prudence, and extra special members-only segments like My Conversations with Mark. And you'll be supporting the work we do here at Amicus and across the rest of the magazine. It's really only $35 for the first year. It means the world to us. To sign up, go to slate.com slash amicus plus. The issue for us this week is speech. It's, pardon me for mixing metaphors, it's the water we swim in. It's what we argue about even when we think we're arguing about politics or law or the Constitution or democracy. Who gets to speak where and who decides what we see and what we say and what, if anything, does the First Amendment have to do with any of this? 
Our guest today is Jamil Jaffer. He is the executive director of the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia University. Before that, he was deputy legal director at the ACLU and director of their Center for Democracy, where he oversaw the ACLU's work relating to free speech, privacy, technology, national security, and international human rights. Jamil has litigated some of the most significant post-9-11 cases that lie at this intersection of national security and civil liberty including the lawsuit that resulted in the publication of the Bush administration's torture memos and the litigation that resulted in the publication of the Obama administration's drone memos. He has argued in multiple appeals courts as well as in the U.S. Supreme Court. I am such a fan of his work and the way he thinks. Jamil Jaffer, welcome to Amicus. Oh, thank you for inviting me. It's great to be here. So I think I've had a post-it note pinned to my screen saying, do a First Amendment show for like three years. And it sweeps in every news cycle from, you know, the the Facebook quote-unquote Supreme Court, your own litigation around Trump's tweets, cancel culture, the speech defenses that came up uh, at the impeachment trial. And I think of the First Amendment as a framework that governs all of those things. But, of course, it implicates less and less of those things. Uh, as you suggested to me when we were thinking about this show, the First Amendment is, quote, everywhere but nowhere. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about this tension where the Supreme Court is protecting more and more activity under the First Amendment. But as private actors flood this zone, the First Amendment actually matters less and less. Is that an accurate description of what is going on? Yeah, I, I think so. You know, when I said that the First Amendment is everywhere and nowhere, you know, I was thinking about first the fact that the, the Supreme Court does keep expanding the First Amendment's reach to more and more kinds of expression or even not just expression, but speech very broadly construed. And you know, I'll just give you one example. There's a case called Sorrell from a few years ago, um, which involved data mining and drug companies' efforts to market their drugs to doctors. And the Supreme Court held that this particular kind of commercial activity was speech and there's a stray phrase in Justice Kennedy's opinion, which says something like information is, is speech, data is speech. And there is this kind of thread in recent Supreme Court jurisprudence that is consistent with that very broad conception of the First Amendment, this idea that the First Amendment protects not just speech as colloquially understood, but any effort to convey information. And if you're a First Amendment enthusiast, then maybe your you know, first reaction to that is, well, isn't that great? Isn't it great that the First Amendment is getting attached to more and more things? Um, well, it might be, might be great or it might be not so great. You know, the, the consequence of attaching the First Amendment to new forms of you know, expression or speech is that it becomes much, much harder for government to regulate those activities. There's a case in the courts now, in the district court now, involving Clearview, which is you know, a company that scraped millions and millions of photographs from the internet in order to build a facial recognition app. And the ACLU and others have sued Clearview under a state law, an Illinois state law, that applies to the collection and sale of biometric information. Clearview is actually represented by Floyd Abrams here, uh, who is a you know, legendary First Amendment litigator. Clearview is arguing that uh, their activities are protected by the First Amendment. And 
that this Illinois law is unconstitutional as applied to its activities. And that's, you know, that just sort of gives you a sense of, you know, what's at stake in these debates about the scope of the First Amendment, because if you interpret the First Amendment very, very broadly to encompass uh, the right of a company like Clearview to scrape photographs from the internet and build facial recognition apps of this kind, then you have really disabled legislatures from enacting laws that many people, including me, think are you know, necessary to protect individual privacy and maybe even necessary to protect the integrity of public discourse, which is supposed to be what the First Amendment is all about. So the First Amendment is everywhere in the sense that the courts are extending the First Amendment's application to more and more kinds of activity. But it's also true, I think, that the First Amendment is kind of strangely absent in some places where we really should want it to be present. And some of them have nothing to do with the digital age, and some of them are just much more places where we, for a long time, would have expected the First Amendment to be, but it doesn't seem to be. So I'm thinking about you know, protest rights, for example, or whistleblower rights, right? During the, you know, the Black Lives Matter protests over the last year, there were all kinds of abuses by police, abuses of protesters, abuses of the media, journalists being prevented from reporting on important public activities of the police, individuals being prevented from protesting when they had a right to protest. And, you know, the First Amendment seemed to do very little work in protecting those core First Amendment rights. And I would say the same thing with respect to whistleblowers. The Obama administration infamously used the Espionage Act more than any previous administration against whistleblowers who were sharing information with the press. And the Trump administration sort of continued that trend. And the First Amendment is really nowhere to be found when it comes to the right of whistleblowers to share information, national security secrets with the press, where those national security secrets would inform the public of the abuse of power by government officials, for example, or you know, large-scale waste or fraud on the part of government officials. The First Amendment doesn't seem to be doing very much work. So the First Amendment is, is it everywhere in some senses and nowhere in other senses. What you're saying is there are benefits to being able to regulate some of this uh, under First Amendment doctrine, but they're real harms. And one of the harms is then it falls almost entirely onto private entities. In some ways, that's a good thing. I think you would contend right from the beginning. We don't want the government, whatever we don't want the government doing, we don't want them deciding what is speech. But you're saying that the cost of saying, you know what, this has nothing to do with the First Amendment. It's entirely uh, a, a private entity and they should regulate that. It might be what the framers wanted, but it mm-hmm. creates a whole host of new problems. Well, I think all that is true. Now we have these private entities that are doing a lot of the work of regulating speech, right? So, you know, when we engage in political speech now, it's often on social media platforms or on new communications platforms that are controlled not by the government, but by private corporations. And those private corporations now have a very significant role in determining who gets to speak and what can be said and what ideas get traction, you know, in the public sphere. And that, I think, is a new thing and one that we haven't, you know, collectively quite figured out how to how to deal with. I'm just trying to get the, the Venn diagrams in my head, Jamil. It feels as though part of what you're saying is the Supreme Court has been diligently beavering away, and we all stipulate this is the most speech-protective Supreme Court, right, probably in history— 
creating new free speech rights in all sorts of contexts, that there are these archaic rights. I think you were flicking at assembly, right? Which is something that we don't quite know what it means. It's fallen into disuse. The doctrine is aged. So it's not actually doing the things it's meant to be doing, core functions of speech protective, what what the framers would have thought is core political speech is not doing those things. The circle is expanding to encompass a whole bunch of other stuff. And then there's this other circle that is completely a separate sphere from government regulation of speech, which is all these private actors that are subject to, we, we, we keep falling into this habit of thinking of them as First Amendment problems. They're entirely separate. But whatever they're doing is sort of happening in some other universe where, say, the Supreme Court of Facebook is working it out as they go along. That's that's the table? I think that's a good map. Um, I might complicate it in you know, one more way, which is that, yes, it's true that these private companies, you know, are not bound by the First Amendment in that, and in that particular sense, the First Amendment, you know, doesn't have anything to do with, you know, their, their decision. I should say that that's all true under current doctrine. There are many, you know, serious uh, First Amendment theorists who think that current doctrine is wrong and that the First Amendment should have something to do with whether Facebook, for example, can, you know, tell somebody that they can't use Facebook. But under current doctrine, you know, that's not governed by the, the First Amendment. Facebook is free to make whatever decisions it wants. But the, the reason I say, you know, we can complicate this, you know, in one more way is that when governments try to regulate the technology companies, often the technology companies are relying on the First Amendment as a means of, you know, challenging the legitimacy of those regulations. And the Clearview case is a good example of it, but it's not the only example. I mean, there's another case that my institute is tangentially involved in, in in Maine, involving an internet privacy law that restricts what internet service providers can collect about their customers and how they can use that data. And the ISPs are challenging the law on First Amendment grounds. They're saying, uh, this law prevents us from collecting certain kinds of information and from doing targeted advertising on the basis of that information. And that's a restriction of our First Amendment rights. And the law you know, needs to be struck down. So it's not just that the First Amendment doesn't regulate the activities that these companies are engaged in. It's that when Congress tries to regulate those activities, these companies rely on the First Amendment to challenge the uh, legitimacy of the regulations. So this is why I think that it's not at all you know, some people are looking to the First Amendment to be the solution to our problems in the digital public sphere. And I think, you know, there's a real question, can the First Amendment be a solution here? But there's also a question, you know, is the First Amendment the problem? Is the First Amendment, uh, as currently understood, you know, an obstacle to the kind of legislation and regulation we need to protect the integrity and the vitality of the digital public sphere? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now, let's return to our conversation with Jamil Jaffer. He's executive director of the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia University. 
let's make this just one notch more complicated before we solve everything. And, and, and that is that this confounds any right-left construction that you could put on it so that, and I think you are going to give me all the examples of why, but I'm thinking about Clearview and I'm thinking about, you know, the the piece that you wrote about Clearview. And, and I think it's really worth saying that a lot of the groups that fundamentally objected to the kind of scraping uh, and tracking facial recognition sold to law enforcement agencies uh, in Clearview, in the Clearview uh, litigation, were completely delighted when uh, the same kinds of technologies were being used uh, by private individuals or by, by law enforcement to bring the Capitol rioters to justice after January 6th, right? So this is, I feel like, and I know that the valences, the political valences are complicated, but I also feel like in a many, many ways, Jamil, part of the problem, and I know I've tracked you, how you've been thinking about Donald Trump and Twitter because it's similar, right? That you, you can be on both sides of this or neither side, depending on whose ox is being gored. Yeah, I mean, you're definitely right that the politics of all of this are, are very complicated. The ideological lines are, you know, all tangled up. Part of that is just that, you know, people who are operating in good faith are dealing with tensions between principles that they hold dear. Like, you know, I strongly believe that uh, it's a problem that these big technology companies have so much control over what can be said and who can say it. On the other hand, I strongly believe that we need a digital public sphere that is not overwhelmed with harassment and abuse and you know hateful speech. And you know sometimes these two things come into conflict, and it's not obvious how we should resolve those kinds of you know kinds of tensions. But uh, I was just reading this piece, you know, this morning that was arguing that we need something akin to the fairness doctrine for social media. Uh, in other words, we need to restrict the social media companies from, from kicking off their platforms on the basis of political view. And I think this is a totally you know, legitimate argument and a, you know, a, a serious argument, but this argument was coming from the right. And I associate this argument with the fairness doctrine, which you know was a is a doctrine that we normally associate with the left. This is a now kind of routine that I you know see arguments that I would ordinarily have associated with one end of the political spectrum, but being made most forcefully by people on the other end of the political spectrum. And then then there are also some actors in this space who are you know not not good faith actors at all. I'm thinking in particular of the debate around Section 230, you know, which is the you know, as you know the statute that effectively immunizes the platform companies for the speech that their users engage in on their, you know, on their, on their platform, or at least immunize them from civil lawsuits. And there are, you know, a bunch of politicians out there who, you know, claim to be concerned about the integrity of public discourse and, you know, are saying that the solution to all of this is repealing Section 230. And I, I don't actually think that you know, anybody who's genuinely concerned about the health of public discourse would think that repealing Section 230 is is the solution. I just don't see those things as connected. I think it's really about, you know, Section 230 has become a kind of flag to wave in a kind of cultural war. And you know, that's what that is about. I don't mean to suggest that amendments to Section 230 aren't worth considering. And, you know, there are serious proposals out there that I think are maybe good ones. 
But when Senator Josh Hawley, for example, says repeal Section 230, I don't think that's you know the result of a kind of good faith effort to try to figure out what's really ailing our public sphere. And you know, I don't think that's that's what it's about at all. So, so if I'm trying to tease you into anything, it's it's to to help me back into some first principles here because I think we're agreeing that you know tech companies that claim to be both subject to First Amendment protections, but immune from, you know, liability, uh, claiming to be publishers of material and not sometimes not publishers of material. There's a, a, a slipperiness here, I think, that makes it really hard to figure out what it is that we think we need to be building towards if we're going to really protect speech in the in the new media era and i think one of the questions i had for you was about twitter because it you spent years at the knight foundation litigating donald trump's decision to deplatform i think seven right of his critics on twitter saying that no hey that's this is a, a public forum under the first amendment and you prevailed at the district court and affirmed in the second circuit but weirdly you, I think, are also on record being fine with Trump himself being deplatformed, bounced completely from Twitter. And so, again, I find myself trying to square those two in order to f- figure out what the actual principle is. So I'll tell you how, how I square them. and You can tell me if it's persuasive or not. The, the litigation we brought was a challenge to, as you say, Trump's decision to you know, kick seven people off his account or out of his comment threads because of their criticism of his administration's policies. And the sort of factual context here was new. You know, Twitter is a relatively new platform. Social media is relatively new. But the principles we were relying on are very well-established First Amendment principles that if you have um, a space that is opened up to the public by the government for expressive activity, that's a public forum under the First Amendment, which means that government actors can't uh, constitutionally exclude people from the space on the basis of viewpoint. And, you know, that's the argument we made in the district courts, the argument we made in the Second Circuit. We won, as you said, the case is still pending before the, the, the Supreme Court for some strange reason. But, you know, we, we've we won in, in the lower courts and we've won the same, you know, essentially the same case in other circuits now. So I think that, you know, that's pretty straightforward, even though the application of the public forum doctrine to this new technology is novel. Now, when it comes to you know, Twitter's decision to deplatform Trump, Twitter isn't subject to the First Amendment. Twitter is not a government actor. Um, so you know, Trump doesn't have a First Amendment argument to invoke in this context. To the contrary, it's Twitter that has the First Amendment argument to invoke. Twitter is saying, we have the right to shape the expressive platform that we've created. And part of that is deciding who can speak and what the limits of the forum are. And, uh, you know, that's what that's what Twitter did in this particular case. I actually think that Twitter was, you know, was right to keep Trump's account up for as long as it did. I, you know, I'm glad that it did. I think that, you know, the public has a kind of, you know, I don't mean a First Amendment right here, but a kind of more general right of access to the president's speech. We learned a lot from the president's tweets. Sometimes what we learned was horrific, but we nonetheless, you know, learned a lot from his speech on Twitter. And, you know, even when what the president was saying was offensive or untrue, I think Twitter was right to kind of rely on other users, Twitter's users, to respond to that speech. 
And in some contexts, Twitter itself responded when what the president was spreading was disinformation about the election. Twitter itself attached labels to the president's tweet saying that this is, you know, this is untrue. And I think that in general, that was exactly the right way for Twitter to respond. The, the reason I say I'm okay with Twitter taking, you know, ultimately having taken the president's account down is that, you know, on January 6th, what the president was doing was not just speaking in ways that were offensive or wrong, but encouraging immediate unlawful activity, not just unlawful activity, but violent activity. And I think in that situation, you know, as the kind of First Amendment theory matter, you can't rely on the marketplace of ideas to, you know, solve the problem of incitement. By definition, incitement doesn't leave time for considered responses and debate. What the president was doing was calling for, it's like, you know, telling your dog to attack, you know, that, that's not, you're not participating in the marketplace of ideas, if, if that's the kind of activity you're engaged in. And I think that, you know, at that point, it became untenable for Twitter and the other social media companies to continue to host the president's speech. So, uh, you know, I, I tend to be very critical of the social media companies, but in this particular context, you know, on this particular issue, I think that they basically got it right. Yeah, I think that they were right to keep his account up for as long as they did and right to take it down when they did. I, that's the response I read uh, that you had when people like Eugene Volokh and I think Angela Merkel, I mean, people were very, very worried about the precedent being set by Twitter shutting the president down. And I think your point was the one you just made so forcefully, which is, y'all, this is just incitement now. <laughs> like, it is clearly incitement. And I wonder... If we're back on the shoals of where we started, which is the entire impeachment defense was this isn't incitement under Brandenburg. This isn't there was no face to face requirement. There was no knowledge of imminent unlawful action. And so, again, I feel like you've just put us back, she says, accusingly into that loop of if we're going to rely on First Amendment incitement doctrine to say it was completely appropriate to shut him down at that moment. It, it doesn't get us there, right? You're right, and I I um, uh, I probably shouldn't have used the word incitement. I uh, let me just say that Twitter appropriately concluded that the president was encouraging people to engage in imminent violence, and it doesn't matter to me whether that meets the First Amendment standard or not. Twitter is not a, a government actor. Twitter doesn't have to satisfy the First Amendment, but I think that you know for the same reasons that we generally allow the government to shut down speech when it rises to a particular level. You know, Twitter was justified in shutting down the president's speech when it sort of became First Amendment incitement adjacent, even if it wasn't, you know, incitement under the, the First Amendment standard. Now, with impeachment, you know, I, I think that that was just kind of a, you know, almost, a, I don't know if category mistake is exactly the right phrase, but there too, it doesn't matter whether the president's speech rose to the level of incitement under the First Amendment, that's not the relevant standard, right? The, the, the relevant standard is effectively, is this the president we want? <laughs> and uh, it's not the relatively stringent Brandenburg test. You know, you, you can impeach a president for all sorts of reasons that don't relate to incitement of immediate unlawful activity. So I think that that was kind of a mismatch. But that kind of mismatch is, you know, as you have you know, suggested, routine these days that, you know, we take the language of the First Amendment and we use it in contexts where the First Amendment doesn't apply or at least doesn't apply in any direct way. 
And, you know, maybe that just suggests that we need some new language, you know, for these contexts in which we're often referencing the same kinds of arguments that are referenced in the First Amendment context, but the First Amendment doesn't actually operate as a legal standard. We probably do need that language. So, so that's a perfect segue to my question about Facebook um, and its quote-unquote Supreme Court, because that seems like an absolutely perfect manifestation of what you're describing, which is we're going to construct something that actually has nothing to do uh, with the First Amendment legal regime that has existed for centuries. But we're going to kind of give it the trappings of that. And we're going to certainly colloquially call it a Supreme Court, and we're going to people it with First Amendment scholars. And I know you um, read the Kate Klonick piece uh, about the the construction and how the court is working, how that board is working in The New Yorker. But I do wonder if it's a little bit the same problem. I know you declined to be on that board. But the sense I get from reading um, Kate's amazing piece, and this is a sense I got, this must be so familiar to listeners of this podcast, that you just have to believe in it because there's no plan B, right? If we don't believe that that regulatory board is eventually going to get it right, I think in the article they liken it to Peter Pan and believing in fairies. If you don't believe that they are going to find some perfect algorithm for regulating speech on Facebook, then we're well and truly screwed, right? So your your critiques notwithstanding, here's the problem. There just has to be a Supreme Court for Facebook. Well, it depends what you mean by that. Part of what Facebook is looking for here is the appearance of constraint, right? They want to be able to convey to everybody that they don't actually have all this unconstrained power. You know, in fact, they're subject to oversight, hence the name of the, you know, the name of the entity, right? And part of the reason they have created all that is to head off the possibility that governments around the world will themselves exercise the kind of oversight that we need them to. There is a little bit of a disconnect between the oversight that the oversight board is engaged in and the oversight that I think we need governments to in, to be engaged in. You know, what the oversight board is focused on is content moderation decisions. That's really it. Basically, when Facebook takes something down, was Facebook right to take that thing down or not? That's really the limit of the board's authority. And content moderation decisions are sometimes important. But part of the reason they are so important has to do with Facebook's design decisions, this engineering decisions, right? So Facebook decides you know, what shows up at the top of your newsfeed. And Facebook's policies relating to political advertising determine you know, how granularly targeted, is that a word, that uh, a political ads can be and whether those ads can be responded to if they include false information. And those kinds of decisions those human and algorithmic decisions that go into Facebook's design are ultimately much, much more consequential than these decisions about content moderation. And to the extent that content moderation decisions are consequential, it's largely because of these design decisions that Facebook has made previously. And so the oversight board has this very narrow jurisdiction and by design, narrow jurisdiction, Facebook doesn't want to turn over to the oversight board decisions about the algorithms because 
The algorithms are what determine whether Facebook makes money or not. And Facebook doesn't want to give you know these law professors the authority to make decisions that affect how much money Facebook makes. And nor could Facebook actually turn those decisions over because Facebook is a private corporation that has you know obligations to its shareholders. So I think that it's too bad that the oversight board is uh, jurisdiction is so narrow, but it's also entirely unsurprising that the oversight board's jurisdiction is so narrow. And rather than look to the oversight board to solve all our problems, we should be looking to governments, actual governments, not Facebook-created governments whose members are all determined by Facebook and whose resources come from Facebook, but real governments. And real governments should focus not on content moderation, but on these deeper questions about the structure of the social media platforms and even broader questions about you know, how technology companies deal with the privacy of their users questions relating to transparency and accountability to the public for the decisions that they're making. Like There are lots of ways that governments could improve the health of our digital public sphere. You know, privacy regulation is, is where I'd start, but also antitrust, interoperability mandates, which would make it easier for people to leave one platform and, you know, and move to another. Transparency mandates that would require the companies to be more accountable to the public for the kinds of decisions that they're making. You know, there are lots of ways that actual governments could regulate these companies. And I see the oversight board as, in significant part, an effort to preempt or sap the energy, the political energy that would otherwise be put behind those uh, you know, efforts at legislative reform. We'll be right back. I think you made a version of this argument really recently in the New York Times, and you said effectively what you just said here, which is treating Facebook as though it's some vast public square for speech purposes and then having a a board of people determine, you know, what can and can't be pulled down really elides this huge design problem, which is that Facebook is a money-sucking, privacy-sucking entity that uh, feeds you information for reasons other than purely marketplace of idea uh, reasons. And it it does bring me back to this one first principle question I wanted to, to poke at with you, Jamil, which is that metaphor, the marketplace of ideas, has been so completely corroded, I think. We're, we're so fond of it. And there is just an abiding, I think, like very sweet American notion that good speech is always going to be the cure for bad speech. But the marketplace of ideas is, I mean, much smarter people than I have uh, offered critiques for decades about how ass backward that marketplace of ideas is as a metaphor when, um, you know, it's absolutely not in any way, a marketplace, and it's certainly not surfacing all ideas so that consumers can pick the best ones. Do you have, for the digital age, a more workable or more apt metaphor for how to think about this, given that I think the marketplace ultimately that we're looking at with these online platforms is for us? Yeah, I mean, you're right that it's a, you know, deeply problematic metaphor, uh, whether it's problematic because what we have isn't a marketplace of ideas or because what we have is a marketplace of ideas, you know, I'm not sure. 
Uh, maybe there's a little bit of both that you know it's problematic in both senses. But even if you do subscribe to you know the marketplace of ideas, even if you think that that is you know an apt description of uh, what we have or what we should be aspiring to, part of the challenge with social media platforms is that they insulate or they can insulate people from views that are different from their own, right? And maybe the main insight of the marketplace of ideas or the main component of that theory is that bad speech will be corrected by good speech. But the structure of the social media platforms sometimes interferes with that possibility. You know, it deprives people of access to or shields them from the good speech that would you know, correct the bad speech. I don't actually know how big a problem. I think that is a problem. And there are filter bubbles on social media and social media companies have an incentive to create those filter bubbles or the filter bubbles result from the incentives that the social media companies have. How much of that is responsible for the defects in our larger sort of political discourse? I'm not, you know, I'm not actually sure, but I just say that because I, I think that even if you love the marketplace of ideas, you know, you might still, you know, wonder whether the social media platforms are serving public discourse or serving the, the needs of our democracy. What happens on social media platforms doesn't re- resemble the marketplace of ideas as usually described. Before I say goodbye, I think I want to ask you, you've you've at least hinted at a whole bunch of different legislative antitrust regulatory fixes that could start to solve some of the problems that we've described here. But I wonder if we can pan back and just talk about the ways in which this is ultimately a global problem. And um, we can talk about Australia's efforts uh, to regulate Facebook and Google, forcing them to pay publishers for news and (laughs) shutting the whole thing down. But I wonder if part of what is worrying me is we get really myopic in the United States talking about this as a First Amendment problem. I think we've now established conclusively it's not only a First Amendment problem, but it's even beyond American problems and American fixes and American frameworks. We've got a global problem, and I wonder if you or Knight or someone with a much bigger brain than me has a a kind of overarching theory of how this gets done. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right that, that, uh, and I, you know, uh, I'm more guilty than most of this, but you're you're absolutely right that that the debate in the United States is sometimes too myopically focused on the First Amendment. That's a problem for multiple reasons. One one of them is that the First Amendment is an American thing and nobody else cares about it. But the other is that it's not obvious that the First Amendment is offering us better solutions to these problems than Section 2B in Canada, for example, right? There are many other countries that are struggling with these same issues, and some of them seem to have come up with better solutions than we have. So, you know, we we should be open-minded about what can be learned from the experience of other countries. But I agree that there's a global problem here. I don't know that that means that the solution should be global, right? When I talk about what I think the right answer is, I often have, even if I'm not at that particular moment thinking about it in this way, I often have American institutions in the back of my mind, right? So when I say that, yes, it made sense for Twitter to keep Trump's account up for as long as it did, you know, I have American institutions in the back of my mind and I am taking into account 
the other kind of checks on government power. You know, so yes, I worry or I worried that Trump, uh, you know, would order the military to do some crazy thing. But I also knew that there are other checks on his power. Now, if we weren't talking about Trump or we were talking about Duterte instead, right, or we're talking about Modi in India, you know, it's a different set of institutions that are, are at play in those places. And whether the same solutions make sense in those places as make sense in the United States. I don't know. You know, you you have to talk to people who know those societies a lot better than, than I do. You know, whatever solutions we come up with are going to make sense against the background of some set of institutions. And those institutions are unlikely to be global. They're more likely to be local or national. And so I think that, you know, it may be that the problem is global, but that doesn't mean that you know, one solution is going to be, uh, there's a kind of one size fits all solution to, you know, to that problem. So maybe if we can agree on one lingering principle for listeners today, it could be this. It's all really complicated and uh, it's changing faster than we can get our heads around it in some sense. Uh, probably if you and I had had this conversation three years ago, we would have talked about yeah. fundamentally really different concerns, but that what isn't useful, Jamil, is to continue uh, to stand up and say, cancel culture, cancel culture, <laughs> my right to speech, uh, I have a right to publish this book, everybody's silencing me. None of those yes, yes, we flavors can, we of that. speech conversation yeah. are useful, right? I absolutely agree. Okay. Well, I think maybe that's a, a, as good a place as any uh, to conclude a conversation that I really feel like uh, I'm only beginning to figure out how to think about. Jamil Jaffer is executive director of the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia University. Before that, he was deputy legal director at the ACLU and director of their Center for Democracy, where he oversaw their work relating to free speech, privacy, technology, national security, and international human rights. I think I've known him since back in the days when he was working on uh, national security around the torture memo. So it makes me feel that's right. Uh, yeah. As though we are both very, very old and shaking. In fact, at new Dolly, do you remember you you um, you came to an event, I think, at Sundance that we put on about yes. uh, the torture memos, right? Torture and memos. I was just remembering that now it must have been 2000. I don't know, six or seven or eight. I don't know. I, I can't remember exactly when, but a long time ago. Uh, Jamil Jaffer, I know you're crazy busy, and I know that um, a lot of us look to you in these confusing times to help us figure it out. Thank you for making time for us. Thank you so much, Dolly. And that is a wrap for this particular episode of Amicus. Thank you so much for listening in, and thank you so very much for your letters, your questions, your queries. You can always keep in touch at amicus at slate.com, or you can find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham. We had research help this week from Daniel Maloof. Gabriel Roth is editorial director, Alicia Montgomery is executive producer, and June Thomas is senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. Take good care of yourselves. It is a long winter. Be well, and we will be back with another episode of Amicus in two short weeks. At Grand 
Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu.